This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. And now, from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Business of Healthcare. Here is your host, Mitch Goldman. Welcome to the Business of Healthcare. I'm your host for this week, Mitch Goldman, Wharton Healthcare Management alumnus and a retired partner in the Health Law Practice Group at Dwayne Morris. I'm currently the CEO of Mid Atlantic Dental Partners, a regional dental management company. The Business of Healthcare is live every Tuesday at noon Eastern, right here on Business Radio. If you have a question or comment during today's show, please call us at 1 844 Wharton. That's 1 844 942 7866. Our lines are open. Today, we're going to talk about the current status of the Affordable Care Act, and we're going to be focusing on the legal minefield, battlefield, whatever uh, adjective you want to apply to it. We'll discuss the status of recent, ca- recent cases, administrative decisions, and state legislation impacting key provisions of the Affordable Care Act. What do they mean for the future of the ACA? I'm joined by three experts with extensive knowledge on this topic. First, Joining me in the studio is a good friend and colleague, Rob Field, a nationally recognized expert in healthcare regulation and his role in implementing public policy. He holds a joint appointment as Professor of Health Management and Policy at Drexel's Dornsife School of Public Health and is also a Professor of Law at the Klein School of Law at Drexel University. He's also a lecturer in healthcare management, of course, at the Wharton School and a senior fellow at Penn's Leonard Davis Institute. You've got a lot of titles. Uh, yep. Thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. Great. Next is Kathy, uh, Katie Keith, a, fla- a faculty member at the Georgetown University Law Center, where she teaches courses on the Affordable Care Act and LGBT health law and policy. She's also the author of the follow- Following the ACA blog for the Health Affairs blog and is an appointed consumer rep to the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, the NAIC. Katie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're really interested in this whole discussion. And and last but not least is Sarah Collins. Sarah is a health economist and vice president for healthcare coverage and access at the Commonwealth Fund and has authored numerous articles on health insurance coverage and policy. Sarah, thanks for joining us as well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, let, let me just say this to our listeners out here. I, I know this could definitely be a sleeper uh, show with all the diving into the weeds around insurance and the Affordable Care Act. Uh, trust me, it won't be. Uh, we, this is a really serious issue. It's something that's where the changes that are taking place are, outs, are outside the true vis, truly visible political process. And for those of us who are really concerned about its future impact, we have three guests who are really going to identify some of the critical issues we're facing right now. I expect for those people who are concerned about coverage, who are concerned about what's happening in terms of the delivery of care, who are concerned about what's happening with health insurance, what's going to happen to my premium, these are going to be some of the issues that we're going to focus on, but we're going to get to it from some of the underlying issues that really don't get the coverage they actually deserve. So let's get started. Um, I wanted to kind of open the conversation and ask Rob to just give us a a sense of where we are, what's going on generally, and then we can kind of dive down into some of the critical issues. Rob? Right. Well, politically, we have the opera that never ends. It's been going on since 2010 when the law passed. It accelerated in 2014 when the coverage expansion began with with the marketplaces and the Medicaid expansion. And and it just hasn't died down. Uh, And under Trump, it's been ratcheted up, in fact. So we have multiple levels. We have litigation. We have the lawsuit in Texas trying to have the entire law declared unconstitutional. And we'll get into that. Uh, We have uh, numerous other smaller lawsuits challenging pieces of it, contraception coverage and so forth. And we have political drama in Washington uh, where Congress has uh, recently repealed the individual mandate, at least the the penalty associated with it, and is looking at taking other actions. And we have actions in many state capitals. Uh, In some of the blue states uh, going the other way, uh, there are now 
The other way meaning? Uh, there are three states that are trying to beef up the ACA and add their own mandate penalties to make up for the lack of the federal one. Um, and then we have red states, which are trying to uh, cut back on the Medicaid expansion, add work requirements, add limitations on coverage, uh, which would limit that piece of it. Got it. Okay. So let, let's just go back, because I know I'm going to have to spend some time with this role of kind of undoing or translating Mm -hmm. the insurance speak. When we talk about the individual mandate, what is it? Okay, so one of the key pieces of the law um, with regard to the marketplaces is a rule that every individual who does not otherwise have coverage through Medicare, Medicaid, or an employer has to obtain coverage through the individual market or pay a penalty. Uh, The idea is that they want to bring everyone into the market so they can spread the risk among the healthy and the sick. Uh, So that's really what the mandate is. You are mandated to have some form of insurance. Um, You're still mandated to do that uh, under the law uh, starting in 2019, but the penalty for not doing it is zero. So so there's no coercive effect. Without the penalty, people can opt, just opt out. That's right. And in fact, uh, when the Supreme Court reviewed the constitutionality of it in 2012, what they said was it's basically a tax that you can either uh, uh, pay uh, the, the full amount of the tax being the penalty or you can get an exemption by having insurance uh, similar to a uh, fuel efficient car. Uh, you can get a tax break if you buy a full efficient car, uh, or uh, you can just pay your your full tax share. Uh, neither one is considered criminal or, or outlaw or, or contrary to the law. They're just equivalent ways of meeting your tax obligation. Got it. Okay, so we have a bunch of different fronts that we're dealing with. I know I had a conversation before this with, with Katie Keith. Katie, talk a little bit about the Texas case. I, I know that you've been writing about it. I just get, just get let's get some people up to speed on what's going on in Texas right now. Sure. So the Texas litigation actually stems from this issue that Rob is really talking about, the fact that the individual mandate penalty itself has been zeroed out. So that was actually done during the sort of Republican tax reform bill in Congress in December of 2017. Uh, a few months later, in February, you had Republican attorneys general from 20 states across the country file this lawsuit in Texas, taking aim again at sort of the constitutionality of the individual mandate. So they are really trying to kind of revisit that Supreme Court decision that Rob was just talking about to say, if there's no penalty, you know, based on what the court said, there's really no tax. And if there's no tax part of the uh, mandate, then it's unconstitutional. Um, I think reasonable minds could disagree about that. I think the the kicker here is that they want to argue that if that mandate is now unconstitutional, the entire rest of the Affordable Care Act uh, is also unconstitutional okay. and should be struck down. Got it. So, so let's 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 kind of just again zero in. There's no penalty, correct? correct. So if there's no in 2019, right? So if there's no penalty, why does anybody care about <laughs> declaring the entire act unconstitutional? We've now gotten. We've now without legislation. We've now gotten – well, we, we had legislation to get rid of it, but without a political fight to repeal it, all we did was replace – we took away the penalty, right? Who cares? They achieved their mission. Why do they want to go to court? That's my question, Katie. Why do they want to go to court? Uh, you know, I, I think there's uh, – I think it's a serious political question. I think um, – so uh, in addition to this, you kind of had these – Uh, Republican attorneys general leading this charge. You then saw a number of Democratic uh, attorneys general intervene in the case. So they are also uh, in this lawsuit. And then we've seen the Trump administration weigh in. Um, I think that, you know, there is this sort of political question. Um, Those Democratic attorneys general are really pointing to the fact that uh, this is kind of an end run around Congress, if you will, that if for folks you know, probably who listened to this show, if you were paying attention last year, there were multiple efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act and sort of do the dismantling that these Republican attorneys general are aiming for. And it failed repeatedly. Um, Congress could not get it done. As you just said, Mitch, all they could do was sort of repeal the mandate penalty itself. And so I think there's a lot of discussion back and forth of why why are they taking aim at this issue? And that's sort of where we are. Well, okay, let's just stop for a minute and, and bring Sarah into the discussion. Sarah, why is this important from a, from a uh, what I would call a coverage perspective or, or an insurance perspective? Why, what does it mean now? We've now eliminated the individual mandate. 
What what impact does that have? Well, the individual mandate has been found to be pretty effective. So it, um, there's been some research done um, by Sherry Gleed, um, um, also by Matt Fiedler at, at Brookings, um, really showing that it did the mandate um, did did have an effect, particularly among younger people, actually um, encouraging them to get coverage. Um, but um, what we've seen this year is really interesting in terms of the the rates that we've seen um, submitted by carriers that are um, that are that are going to participate in the in the marketplaces in 2019 when the mandate won't be there anymore, and the rates um, have adjusted um, to 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 account for the loss of the mandate, but but you're not seeing the substantial increases in rates that we saw last year um, as a result of other actions by the by the Trump administration. Um, so so it is it is a market that carriers, despite the loss of the mandate penalty, are still wanting to participate in. And the reason for that really, the stabilizing factor here are the premium tax credits um, that, you know, about 90, you know, 80 to 90 percent of marketplace enrollees um, get get tax credits. And that is a really strong incentive for people to buy coverage. And carriers are, 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 are making, um, are doing pretty well now financially um, in the in the individual market and, and marketplaces. So it is important, but it is not, um, but it does not mean if the mandate penalty is not there that the rest of the law doesn't work. And that's, that's the, that's what's being argued in the, in the Texas case. Um, and if 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 it were um, to be upheld, if the plaintiffs were to prevail, um, Urban Institute has estimated, if this was in all 50 states, um, that about 17 million people could lose their health insurance coverage. So this is very significant, um, and um, certainly not what Congress intended when they repealed the mandate. The mandate penalty last um, last December, um, they left the guaranteed issue or the um, requirement that people be given a offered a health plan if they apply, and that they can't be rated on on the basis of their health. So this is. Um, you know, it's pretty pretty significant in terms of the ramifications of it. Got it, Rob. Would you want to comment? Uh, th- this argument about why the entire law would fail uh, if the uh, um, mandate argument goes—it it has to do with the legal concept of severability. If one part of a large piece of legislation is declared unconstitutional or invalid for some reason, uh, does that kill the rest of it or just that provision? And we saw this discussed in the 2012 Supreme Court case, uh, in which they said. Basically, uh, no. Uh, the, the pieces, uh, uh, one piece can can fa- fail, and, and the rest of it can remain. What the plaintiffs here are arguing is that if the mandate fails, everything else goes. And what I think needs to be emphasized is that that's not just these consumer protections we were talking about. The ACA has uh, um, biosimilars, uh, generic versions of biotechnology drugs. It has a database uh, that reveals which physicians are taking money from drug companies. Companies. It has the Medicaid expansion. It has uh, student loans for medical students. It has accountable uh, care organizations. Uh, so we're talking about major, big-time disruption of the entire health care industry if that argument would prevail. And, and just out of curiosity, um, Sarah, I, I, I'm just concerned about when we talk about markets being disrupted, some of the stuff that I read actually said they were going after all those provisions. Community rating was one of them. Guaranteed issue was one of them. Do you want to talk a little bit about those two items in particular? Well, those two items in particular and the reason that I highlight them um, is because the um, Trump administration's um, Department of Justice has also filed a brief um, that has sided with the Texas plaintiffs um, and claimed that the mandate's unconstitutional and argued that the guaranteed issue and, and community rating can only work with the mandate and must be invalidated. So they 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 do not see the um, case as as um, or the the mandate loss of the mandate penalty as implying that the rest of the law go away as as um as as Rob mentioned. Um, but they but they have singled out the guaranteed issue and community rating um, issue. Um, so the mandate was um, was important to insurers to work in conjunction um, with their new restrictions on their ability to rate people on the basis of their health. Um, So the idea was that um, they wouldn't have to worry about health risks as much um, because people would be required to have health insurance, even people who are healthy. In the past, um, people um, have waited 
elected um, to buy health insurance if they're buying on their own in the individual market. Um, and so they they wait until they become sick, and then and then carriers are left with higher risk, and they price price their their policies really high um, because of it. Um, so the individual mandate was supposed to work in conjunction with those new restrictions and regulations on on, on insurance carriers. And when we talk about community rating, what is community rating? Community rating means that carriers um, are not required, cannot um, rate people on the basis of their health status. Um, so, so they can't um, price you more on the basis of a pre-existing a pre-existing health health condition. Uh, okay, so now we have the words that I always love: pre-existing <laughs> conditions. Okay, why do I love them? Because I've listened now for at least four years for political people or. Uh, what I would call talking heads, discuss pre-existing conditions, and I'm quite convinced most of them cannot make a sentence with pre-existing conditions. The real issue about pre-existing conditions is no one can be denied coverage because they have an existing health problem, correct? That's correct. Okay. So if we now take that restriction out, what happens to the insurer? If we now eliminate the coverage for pre-existing conditions. What happens to the insurer? What happens to the consumer? Well, for the consumer, it means that um, people would, 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 would try to get coverage like they used to before the Affordable Care Act, and if they had a pre-existing health condition, they could be denied coverage or be rated up significantly or have that condition actually excluded from their benefit package. So this was a major problem for for consumers um, prior to the Affordable Care Act. Um, it worked somewhat better for insurance carriers. They, they priced, um, price, they were able to protect themselves from high, high claims costs. Um, but, but with the Affordable Care Act's reform, the individual requirement to have coverage, but also the premium tax credits, which are so important to stabilizing the market, Many more healthy people came into the market, so 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 it so it um, it didn't carriers didn't have to do that anymore because it was just it was a much better it became a much um, uh, more efficiently functioning um, market um, with the rating rules on insurers and also the subsidies and the individual mandate. Uh, did you want to comment? Yeah. Um, yeah, pre-existing condition is whatever the insurance company wants it to be. Uh, so the idea is it exists pre, before uh, you get the insurance. Um, clearly, if you have a diagnosis of cancer, heart disease, uh, diabetes, uh, that's something that would raise the eyebrows of an insurance underwriter and, and make them be scared that you're going to be a very expensive customer. But insurers have denied coverage for very minor things, for for uh, broken bones you know, years before, for emergency room visits. For, for minor things. Uh, so if there is no prohibition on pre-existing condition uh, limitations, uh, then it means huge uh, portions of the population are going to find it impossible or very difficult to get coverage. Katie, do you want to weigh in here? Yeah, you sir, I think uh, the short answer, I think, too, if you if you lose guaranteed issue and community rating, you go back to this wild, wild west of insurance that we had pre-ACA. Um, If that went away, you would sort of end up with the default of state law on this issue, which varies significantly and really takes us back to that sort of patchwork system where the rules and protections that you have vary, um, very, very much based on where you live, which is exactly sort of the issue that the Affordable Care Act was designed to address to put in some minimum standards that apply in every state. I think if these protections go away, too, there's also a question of, you know, how would folks get their subsidies, uh, their premium tax credits that are available through the marketplace that Sarah mentioned have been so important in expanding coverage. If these protections go away, it makes it really difficult to actually calculate how much of a tax credit uh, me as a consumer would be eligible for. Uh, And there's some real kind of operational questions there. So do you also end up, you know, kind of gutting the affordability protections um, beyond kind of just protections for pre-existing conditions as well. Got it. For those unintended of, consequences, yeah. Unintended con- consequences is what this whole show is going to be about, quite honestly. <laughs> for those of you who are just joining in, you're listening to the business of health care. I'm Mitch Goldman. Today we're talking about the current status of the Affordable Care Act. Feel free to join the conversation at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four. I should know this by heart. <laughs> 
Everything's in front of me, and I'm just, I just choked. Okay. But give us a call, especially if you've had some interest in, in the Affordable Care Act, if you've shopped on the exchange, if you're thinking about enrolling in one of the health plans going forward. This coming year is going to be an interesting enrollment period. Uh, I'd like to go back to, to, to um, Katie for a minute because we started to talk about something that was very, very important from, from my vantage point, which is guaranteed issue. Um, I don't think most consumers understand why that's an important provision at all. Uh, you know, you talk about all these buzzwords, and I think they just go by most people. Community rating for certain, you know, the difference between community rating and experience rating, I think is pretty easy to explain. Guaranteed issue, why is that so important, Katie? I mean, guaranteed issue is what tells the insurance company they do not get to pick and choose their customers, which is really where we came from. If you don't have guaranteed, guaranteed issue means... Uh, you as an insurance company have to accept every person that applies for coverage with you. Uh, you don't get to pick and choose based on whether someone, uh, as you were mentioning before, has cancer themselves or maybe has a family history of cancer or has high blood pressure or has asthma or a hay fever allergy. That is, you know, in the vast majority of states, I think all but five, uh, there was no guaranteed issue and folks could be sort of denied at will based on the whims of the insurance company. Guaranteed issue is that guarantee that you can get coverage if you apply for it and you can't be turned away. Got it. So, so we, we now have a, a requirement that everybody has to be taken. We now have a way of rating it around the community so that they can't be surcharged. Uh, but, but, let's, but let's see what, what happens now. We have this case, the Texas case. Uh, you've written extensively about it, Katie. W- what are the implications here going forward? If, the, if this were decided in favor of the, of the plaintiffs here, what would happen? So that's a great question right now. Uh, one really interesting filing uh, from a few weeks ago is it originally sort of all, you know, the 20 Republican attorneys general who filed the lawsuit uh, they wanted these protections struck down nationwide in all 50 states, right? They want the entire Affordable Care Act to be struck down. But in, if they can't get that far, they at least want the mandate, guaranteed issue, and community rating to be struck down in all 50 states. Fast forward uh, a few months, and they were in court a few weeks ago arguing, well, we've changed our mind. We don't necessarily – we don't think you should do this in all 50 states to start. Just knock down these protections in the 20 states that are plaintiffs here. And so that, again, just kind of underscoring that, you know, you would have protections uh, like guaranteed issue and community rating lost in states like Missouri and Texas and Florida and Georgia and any state that's sort of subject to that lawsuit. But maybe it wouldn't be disturbed in California, in Oregon and Washington and any state that didn't file against that. Um, If, you know, the cynic in me thinks that they did that uh, to maybe help prevent some of those Democratic attorneys general from appealing the case if it's a bad ruling. Uh, there, You know, I sort of mentioned some of the Democratic AGs had intervened. Um, maybe that, that makes it more difficult for them to weigh in on the case. Uh, who knows? But the sort of implications here would be you have the potential to have these protections struck down in at least 20 states, if not all 50, depending on what the judge does. I think to Sarah's point, uh, it, you know, none of this should really go into effect until 2019. But what does that mean for insurance companies who right now are sort of making decisions about um, this market and how, you know, at what point does this level of uncertainty really drive them away, even from people they want to serve and in markets where they have, you know, begun to make money and are actually doing pretty well and we're actually seeing expansion uh, of participation. So it could, I think it could be incredibly destabilizing, even just at a district court opinion, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to get an opinion at the district court that would be appealed up to the Fifth Circuit likely. And then you could, you know, have this go up to the Supreme Court and be another one of these blockbuster Affordable Care Act cases. Well, we'll come back to that. Rob, you want to jump in? Yeah, you, you were asking a little while ago, why bring this case? And I think that is the exact point, to destabilize the market, to spook the insurers, to make them raise their prices, maybe exit some markets, and to cause chaos at the market level that would bring down uh, the, the rest of the market mechanism. Uh, I, I think that's really the the underlying purpose here. But do do we do we really understand? Do they Do they have any sense of what the chaos could be? I mean, this marketplace is can be very sensitive. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have to wonder about this case and some of the legislative efforts as well. Um, do they know? I don't know. Do they care? It seems like they really don't. 
So, so let, let's just go through. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So, I, for instance, you know, Maine and Wisconsin are two states that have tried to take some efforts to stabilize their marketplace by setting up something called a reinsurance program. Like Governor Walker, who has been sort of a staunch opponent of the Affordable Care Act, got his legislature to appropriate $200 million for reinsurance. Could you describe um, what reinsurance yeah. is just for our audience? Sure. So. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, (laughs) So this is sort of a um, one of it's kind of like insurance for insurance. And maybe Sarah could talk about this as an economist a little bit better than me. Um, It's it's sort of a way of protecting insurance companies against major loss Um, instead of them. You know, there can be patients with really high costs. And instead of every insurance company pricing, expecting that they will get that one, you know, three million dollar person. This allows them to know that they're going to have. They're going to have, you know, their claims reimbursed at a certain level if they sort of, I'm using air quotes here, get stuck with that patient. So it's this way of sort of bringing down uh, premiums on the front end by having some mechanism to transfer loss on the back end. That was probably not that simple. Well, that's okay. (laughs) Sarah, did you want to weigh in here? Yeah, yeah. Uh, only to, to add that it was the the reinsurance program in the Affordable Care Act was a very critical feature of its of of what we saw happen in the first three years. It had the effect of lowering premiums um, in the marketplaces by as much as fourteen percent. Um, so it is proven to be really effective um, as, uh, in terms of bringing stability to, to premiums, and is why and it's why we saw low low rates that program phased out in 20 at the end of 2016 and it's why we saw higher rates in 2017 when insurers um, adjusted adjusted to the loss of the reinsurance program but as Katie said several states actually three states have approved um, reinsurance um, reinsurance waivers and about four states are, um, are 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 putting them in place and so so they it is it is a and and we've also seen proposals for um for reinstating reinsurance um it's a, in bipartisan bills and so it was a it is something that has bipartisan appeal um um in a in a very partisan um period yeah i mean i think that this this is what got me thinking about the show quite honestly when i started to see everybody playing around in, with the reinsurance issues and how they were going to be funded and what the claims looked like. And, and it, it got me thinking, well, if the insurance, for some reason, there is no reinsurance or they don't fund it properly, a lot of the insurers would leave the market. Is that right, uh, Rob? Uh, I, th- I think there's a, a good chance that they would. It, it makes it a lot riskier for them and a lot harder to predict what their losses might be if if you can have a, a $3 million uh, patient and uh, be on the hook for uh, the entire bill. Um, I, I think it's one of many elements uh, that make the market scarier for insurers and make it likely that fewer of them would participate. Well, and to be clear, that you know the reinsurance um, program was a temporary program, and it, and it is it is no longer um, in effect for for current year. Um, so that it's the um, and and the same is true for the risk corridor program. So there were three premium stabilization programs under the Affordable Care Act. Two of them were temporary: the reinsurance program and the risk corridor program. And the third, the risk adjustment program, is a permanent um, program, but the administration and Katie's written quite a bit a lot this, about this too. Um, but the um, the administration has suspended payments in response to a suit um, in New Mexico against against the program. So that's another um, really significant development this right. year. So let's let's just take a break for a moment and come back to that discussion because we need to take a break right now. So when we come back, we'll continue our conversation about the current status of the Affordable Care Act. You're listening to The Business of Healthcare on Sirius XM. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Business of Healthcare. Here again is Mitch Goldman. Welcome back. This is The Business of Healthcare. I'm Mitch Goldman, Wharton Healthcare Management alumnus and a retired partner in the health law firm of Dwayne Morris. We're continuing our conversation this hour about the current status of the Affordable Care Act. We were having a conversation uh, concerning the rate stabilization parts of the Affordable Care Act, and while that all sounds very complicated, basically what we were talking about, and I want to go back to it in a moment, but what we were really talking about are the ways to encourage insurance companies to take higher-risk patients and 
the, the, the protections that they have in the event that they would have an undue or excessive loss. So it's basically insurance companies. It's insurance for insurance companies. And, and um, Sarah was starting to talk about three different components of the Affordable Care Act that were designed to kind of protect uh, insurers from excessive losses. Do you want to go through that again, please, Sarah? Because I think those three items are really important, especially trying to f- create some stability within the marketplace. Right. The Affordable Care Act um, allowed for, provided for three premium stabilization programs. Um, one was the reinsurance program. The second was the risk quarter program. Both of those were temporary programs. And the third was a permanent risk adjustment program. The, the two temporary programs were designed to help insurers navigate what was a very new um, market. Um, it was one in which consumers um, they were, they had tax credits to help them afford plans. They had an individual requirement to have insurance. Um, and also um, carriers were banned from rating people on the basis of their health or, or denying coverage outright. Um, and so these, were, these, these, these programs were... Um, were aimed at um, making it easier for carriers to participate in the marketplaces, to so remove a lot of the uncertainty that they were having, and they were very effective at reducing at reducing premiums in those in those first three years when carriers just didn't know what their what their pools were going to look like. Were they just going to get a lot of very sick people, or or were they going to have a, a pretty healthy mix of of risk? Um, and so that they, they were very effective. Um, what carriers did in 2017, when the when the when those three programs, when the reinsurance program phased out at least, um, is adjust their rates upward. So we had a one-time correction um, for in the in the premiums to adjust for the loss of that program. But what we're seeing again is um, several states across the country putting their own reinsurance programs in place. And why are they doing that? They are they're they are doing that one of the one of the big um, affordability concerns in the marketplaces are people who earn above the poverty threshold that makes them eligible for the tax credits so people earning above about ninety thousand dollars for a family of four aren't eligible for tax credits they they phase out um, and so what that means is that people in that income range just above that that threshold um, face the full premium so the reinsurance program was a way of bringing premiums down for that for that group um, and it was a way of, of ensuring that carriers were participating Alaska was one of the very first ones Alaska was facing some very significant problems with their with their individual market facing the loss of their sole participant in that marketplace and adding the reinsurance program um, meant that the carrier was 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 confident in their ability to to serve that market appropriately appropriately. So it's both a stabilization effort to make sure insurers um, participate, as well as reducing premiums for people, particularly people above the threshold. Yes, yeah, I, th- I think it's an important. Uh, uh, it was well articulated, okay, because there are two pieces to this puzzle. There's encouraging the making sure it's affordable for the individual, and number two, making sure the insurance company can 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 actually produce a, a policy that they don't lose money on. So, but let's let's take this one step further now. Rob, did you want to weigh in on this piece? Yeah, um, what I find surprising, uh, at least so far, is that the markets have remained reasonably stable despite the political turmoil. Uh, in fact, this year we've seen new insurance companies uh, entering uh, various markets, uh, those in some markets expanding their presence, coming up with new products. Uh, so it seems that uh, it, it's the cat with nine lives. Uh, all all of the efforts to kill it um, don't seem to be really spooking the insurers. Now, will the lawsuit have that effect? Will the Trump administration cutting back on uh, open enrollment periods and on um, help for, for uh, consumers through navigators, will that have the effect? That's yet to be seen. But I think it's remarkable that the market has remained this stable. I think a lot of that is because there is a real need for it. Uh, There are millions of people, um, at least, uh, who desperately need this coverage, and they're going to go into the marketplaces, and they're going to buy the coverage, and they're going to be customers for the insurance companies, and the insurance companies realize that market is solid, and it's going to remain. Now, anybody at at all concerned about, and and I'll I'll throw this to to Katie first, and you can can dodge it if you want, Um, anybody concerned about the fact that the marketplace for 
uh, under 65 is shrinking relative to the marketplace for over 65 and that we just may not have enough of a market to support all this activity. Uh, Katie, you want to take that shot or you want to put it off to somebody else? <laughs> I'm going to uh, defer to Sarah, you can, the economist, again. You can um, punt. I think <laughs> in tr- I would guess for that, I would kind of reemphasize what, what Rob is saying, that, you know, the market could be bigger, certainly. Um, and I think we're sort of also not talking about a, a much larger segment of the population that has enrolled in Medicaid expansion Okay, uh, that's also there. And I think, you know, there's some early estimates from the Congressional Budget Office that, you know, where would people be? I think some of those numbers were a little bit off, but we've kind of got groups in different places. So could it be bigger? Maybe, uh, probably. But does there seem to be this sort of baseline of folks who really rely on this coverage? Absolutely. And that we've we've just seen year after year that that continues to be steady and, and frankly, continues to grow. Okay, That's what I was curious about. So the market's still growing, even though the popular overall the overall population of, of, the, of that insured target market is shrinking um, relative yeah, to I what think, it was. Uh, Sarah, did you want to yeah. come in? There? Yeah, and I think it could grow even more, obviously, particularly if if, if Congress um, and states are many states are, are trying to do this too through reinsurance or also adding um, subsidies to their to their tax credits. A couple states are doing that. But Congress could easily lift the 400% of poverty threshold um, cap on the tax credits, and that would that would that would um, really uh, help this affordability issue that people are facing above that threshold and bring more people into the into the market. We've got some analysis that shows that it wouldn't cost the federal government that much because it's not a large number of people that would come in, but it would be very important for the ones that that, that do come in. So that so Congress could could certainly make some changes that would um, that would help the help the marketplaces and bring more people into the marketplaces. And in the absence of that um, action at the federal level, states are really stepping into the void, and and we are seeing um, several actions: the reinsurance um, activity, um, the additional subsidies um, that I mentioned. Um, um, and also other actions like addressing this um, new emerging um, threat um, of, to, to the markets of these what are non-ACA compliant health plans mm-hmm. like um, limited benefit plans like short-term policies. So states are stepping in and regulating those um, in a number uh, in, in various parts of the parts of the country. So, um, so there are there are policy. The Affordable Care Act is 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 has survived um, remarkably well given um, given the threats against it, as 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 Rob has has pointed out. Um, but it could be um, enhanced and improved um, pretty significantly if if Congress were to come um, address those shortcomings in a, in a bipartisan way. Yeah, see, see, and one of the other things I, I wanted to raise, and, and Rob and I were having this conversation, you should comment on it, the, the, the whole fundamental issue around having different policies in different states and what that does to insurance companies who have to file in 50, hypothetically 50 different state filings, the Affordable Care Act gave them a lot of opportunity to to simplify that whole process. Did you want to comment on that? Uh, it, it absolutely did. And we still have a patchwork of state regulations because the law says that states play the primary role in, in regulating insurance, and that creates a lot of confusion. What that does is it works to the advantage of smaller regional insurers that are only operating in one or a couple of states. And we have seen uh, insurers like Oscar in New York take advantage of that to come up with innovative policies. But for the larger national insurers, it's a major headache and a major reason to avoid the individual market. Right, but but it also could be that if we had that much diversity, you might have more competition, correct? I mean, because I, I it, it seems like the whole industry is consolidating. Maybe, maybe that's my own limited view, but that's how I see it. Yeah, well, there's diversity. There's good and bad diversity. And if diversity means that you sell a policy in Pennsylvania and it has to be totally different in New Jersey and you have a company with residents of both states, uh, that that's not going to help things. Uh, but if you have a, a basic structure that facilitates easy entry into the market, uh, easy entry and I suppose easy exit as well, then you'll see uh, a lot of new companies, a lot of innovative companies trying their hand. And that would uh, encourage competition. Got it. So- Oscar, I know we've talked about Oscar on the show a couple of times. Who else is in the market that's new? Anybody 
Rob, that you can think of? Uh, there are a few of them. I can't think of the names. Maybe Katie or, or Sarah can, yeah. can think of K- them. Katie, but... any thoughts about new entrants into the marketplace? None that come to mind is yeah. brand okay. new entrants like Oscar. That's pretty unique. But what we are seeing more of is, you know, plans like Centene or different kind of yeah. issuers that have kind of primarily been in the Medicaid managed care market have now kind of hopped on to the marketplaces and are selling individual policies and, and things like that. So there's a few big Molina, Centene, those folks come to mind, but they're not that same wave as Oscar. Got it. Well, for those of you just joining in, you're listening to the Business of Healthcare. I'm Mitch Goldman, and today we're talking about the Affordable Care Act and some of the new, uh, well, not necessarily new, but some of the changes that are taking place through the legal system and otherwise that are changing the Affordable Care Act. Feel free to join the conversation at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. We'd love to hear your questions and comments. And just throwing it back to Rob for a minute, um, one thing we've left out of this discussion is 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 where Medicaid and Medicaid expansion is going. Uh, we've all mentioned it here and there, but what, just clue us in. What's going on there? So uh, there's a lot going on at, at multiple levels. Uh, the Medicaid expansion was seen as an important pillar of the coverage expansion under the ACA, and the drafters of the law assumed that every state would adopt it. Uh, it's a great deal for the states. Uh, starting at 100 percent, it goes down to 90 percent, but that's still a lot of health care money uh, that the federal government is going uh, to pay to uh, bring in the, these extra people. It then became a highly partisan issue with a lot of the Republican states refusing to adopt the expansion and, of course, the Supreme Court in 2012 saying that they were free to do that. What makes it difficult for those states is that this expansion is very good for healthcare business and particularly for hospitals who are seeing fewer uninsured. It's also good for insurance companies since most states administer some or all of their Medicaid programs through private insurance companies. So there's a strong uh, business uh, interest in maintaining the expansion. As a result, we've seen a lot of the Republican states accept it. But now they're pushing back in innovative ways. The major one is to put work requirements on. Uh, there are other uh, ideas of, of adding uh, premiums, copays, and deductibles and so forth. The work requirements one would be the most draconian change because potentially it would throw a lot of people off of the rolls. So that's really where the action is right now. But, but let's just go back for a minute I, I because mean, this has always been confusing to me. Um, a lot of the states want it for the money. Mm-hmm. What's the theory around putting a work requirement in there that would take all these people off the rolls and reduce the amount of money they would get anyway? What's the strategy? Is, is it, again, a political piece, not necessarily tied to health care or, or what? Yeah, I, I think it's very much uh, ideological. Um, it's saying that uh, we want to accept the federal money, but we don't want uh, undeserving poor people uh, taking advantage of it. Uh, and it, it's attempt to, I, I think, uh, to kind of have it both ways. Got it. Katie, do you want to weigh in here? No, I think that's right. Um, I think the work requirements are going to continue to sort of feed in on the national debate, both because of litigation we've seen in Kentucky, but it also sort of featured very prominently in the Virginia uh, debate over Medicaid expansion that just recently happened. So in this last cycle, Virginia approved Medicaid expansion, but uh, to sort of have that compromise among state legislators included a work requirement. Um, and, and so there, you know, there's this debate of whether you, you know, is that acceptable or not to, to advocates, to income folks, um, that kind of thing. But I, I don't think the conversation's going away. Um, I don't know if Sarah wants to talk about that litigation uh, over Kentucky as well. Sarah? Yeah, so I think that I think the decision um, in the case in the Kentucky case was really important um, in terms of um, in terms of what we might see going forward. Um, just to be just to be clear about um, Kentucky um, had an had an approved waiver um, from from um, from HHS from CMS. And three other states have approved work requirements um, in place, Arkansas, Indiana, and New Hampshire. Seven others have submitted waivers um, for work requirements, and eight additional states are considering them. So this is a really significant development, as as Rob and Katie mentioned, in the the Medicaid program. The the case in Kentucky um, was brought by 15 uh, Medicaid enrollees, and it challenged 
the legality um, of of the work requirements, along with um, several aspects, uh, uh, several additional aspects of the waiver, including the premium premium payments, um, et cetera. And it was set to go into effect on July 1st, um, and um, and the um, the judge um, in the case um, decided um, to to vacate. Um, it, Health and Human Services approval of the waiver and sent it back to them for further for further review. Um, I think it's what's important, um, just in terms of his the, the judge's decision, um, was that it didn't hold that work requirements were unlawful, um, but but that the secretary in approving um, in approving Kentucky's waiver for work requirements didn't take into consideration the significant loss of coverage that Kentucky itself predicted um, would happen with the work requirements. Um, and because of that, um, the, um, the judge said that the decision by HHS to just approve the waiver was arbitrary and capricious. So it, so it basically turned this back to the states. But I think the really important part of this is that the, um, the 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 stat the Medicaid statute is very clear um, that the purpose of the Medicaid program is to provide medical assistance, um, and people um, who are entitled to Medicaid, including the expansion population, that is an, that is that is a mandatory population now because of the um, because of the Affordable Care Act, are entitled to that medical assistance by law, and the administration, in approving the waiver, didn't take into consideration that that standard wouldn't be met for a lot of people. A lot of people would lose that entitlement because of the work requirements. Got it. Yeah, and, and I think, Bob, you want to jump in? Yeah, that, uh, as with many things, the devil is in the details. I, I think the work documentation uh, the reporting is the most important element of this uh, because I did a little uh, arithmetic. And if you look at the percentage of Medicaid that goes towards frail elderly in nursing homes and children and, and pregnant women and uh, people who are looking for work and uh, people who are disabled, it comes out to less than 1% <laughs> of Medicaid recipients would actually be potentially subject to this. Uh, so that's not going to have a major effect on budgets or on on health care. But what would be is, I, I believe it was Kentucky, uh, that had every three months you had to report on your work status. And that could potentially throw a lot of legitimate enrollees off of the rolls. Yes. It, these are all interesting. We have a, a we have a caller on the line, Jeff from Illinois. You're on the air. Give a, some perspective, um, maybe from a broker standpoint. I've been you know, in the insurance business for quite a while in Illinois. And um, the individual, you know, and a lot of your viewers are probably, or, or listeners are, are listening to this, and they're wondering what's happened over the last few years. You know, we had um, President Obama, when he was first getting this all going, was, was telling everybody that our premiums would reduce by $2,500 a family per year, and we could keep our own doctors. And then here we are a few years later, and we see these individual premiums have tripled. And really... When you try to send a client to the individual marketplace to get a plan, it's usually a mess. It takes forever. Uh, the service is terrible. They can't answer questions. And the agent, me, is basically out of the loop. I can't, it's hard for me to, to try to take care of that customer. But I want to send them there because of the premium subsidies that are available. It's like the best place for someone who, whose income is small enough to qualify for it. But I don't see anywhere. I, my frustration is the fact that, you know, the system may have worked if they could have got everybody to buy a policy. But the one thing they never did is they never did negotiate the cost of services by the providers. And in my hometown and all over the state as I travel, I see massive expansion of facilities and hospitals. Everybody's putting new wings on, and it's pretty obvious to me that they're doing this with the confidence knowing that their, their customers are going to pay the bills now because they have But my frustration again is that, you know, why, why isn't the government, why isn't someone negotiated down the cost of a hip surgery or, or these ma major yeah. problems you could go overseas and have done for a fraction of the cost. And maybe it's tort reform. Maybe that plays a role in it, too. I'm not sure. But yeah, I think there's a sure. – yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off. I think there are a bunch of a bunch of issues that play into this, and unfortunately we're getting close to the end of the, the show. Uh, can I ask, Rob, do you want to comment on the callers? Uh, uh, thanks uh, for the call, uh, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. So in this country, we rely on the private sector to do the negotiating in – 
every other developed country, uh, you have some kind of government plan, and they either dictate the rates or they negotiate the rates. Uh, so some employers, uh, some insurers have been very successful in negotiating uh, low rates, uh, as the caller said, for uh, uh, hip surgeries and, and others, and, and some have not. Uh, and and it's really our haphazard uh, patchwork of a system that I think uh, is re- primarily responsible. Yeah. Katie, you want to uh, give us a yeah. one-minute quick uh, response? Yeah, it's sort of unsatisfying. I mean, one part of the Affordable Care Act that was supposed to try to get at this was something called the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, which was really to kind of set pilot programs to do exactly what the caller was suggesting, of you know, experiment with sort of price setting for hip surgeries or things like that. Um, there's mixed success across that, and it very much was set up as a pilot in part because our system is pretty uh, decentralized and fragmented, as Rob right. just said. So that is the type of program that um, taking it back to the Texas litigation would go away uh, if these plaintiffs are fully successful right. um, that folks aren't even really thinking about and isn't on the radar. Great. Sarah, you have a closing comment? Yeah, I think the caller made a great point, and I think that you know we always have to remember that the major driver of, of premiums are health care costs. Um, and so I think that's why we're seeing in Congress, um, some, at least on the Democratic side, some proposals that would add um, a Medicare-like um, public option to the marketplaces. So just um, just building on the Affordable Care Act, but allowing some public um, some public plan options, not only to guarantee that there's an insurer in every market, um, but also to bring some of the um, cost um, pressure um, to bear on 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 the market. Um, um, that that is that doesn't exist right now. Hey, and Rob, we got a we got about a minute. Well, I I think um, it, it is very unfortunate and sad. Uh, that we've had this political turmoil because, as we've been talking about, there are a few easy fixes that would make a big difference. Um, if we were to extend subsidies to people at slightly higher incomes, if we were to do something about the employer cliff where if you have 50 or more workers, you have to provide insurance, which hurts a lot of those just above the, the 50, uh, and if we were able to beef up the reinsurance and, and risk adjustment and so forth, um, I think we could have maybe not a perfectly fine-tuned machine, but one that was operating a lot better. And we've been trying for 100 years to, to provide universal coverage, and this is our, our shot at it. And uh, it would be very, very unfortunate if we did not uh, fully take advantage of it. Well, on that note, and I think it's a, an appropriate note, uh, unfortunately, it's all the time we have today. We're going to be closing out. I want to thank our guests Professor Robert Field, Katie Keith, and Sarah Collins for what I think was a great attempt at simplifying a very complicated topic. You've been listening to the Business of Healthcare on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM. I'm Mitch Goldman. Thanks for listening. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.